Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Today in our episode, we are launching an investigation into Vanderbilt family values. The story I plan to tell you this week, that of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney and her niece Gloria Vanderbilt in the infamous custody battle of 1934, simply cannot happen without some backstory. 1934 is an infamous year in the Vanderbilt family, but it does not quite take on the nuance and drama without all the juicy news and scoop that's coming your way in today's episode. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to peer into our spyglass and give enormous thanks to our newest Patreon supporters on Done and Done. Thank you, thank you, Jocelyn H. and Ida G. Y'all are the very best. Getting your episodes ad-free and early. Bonus episodes, too, over at our Done and Done community. So grateful to the both of you. So grateful to all of the supporters over there. And so grateful to you for coming to listen today to what is going to be about 70 years of a family history that you couldn't make up if you tried unless it was completely true. Holy cats. What a family. What a saga. Let's investigate. investigators. There is so much interesting connected stuff in this story. It is quite a ride. In order to tell, effectively, I think the story of the 1934 custody battle, we have to begin our investigation today with Cornelius Vanderbilt II and his wife, Alice Claypool Gwynn. This is one of those stories that I started out with an idea and investigated a bit and realized there was a larger mystery at play. We already know a little bit about Cornelius too. He is the favorite grandson of the Commodore, the first Cornelius Vanderbilt. Cornelius II's father is the first son of the Commodore. So naturally, Cornelius II is the favorite grandson. Cornelius II has a brother, younger brother. We already know about him too. William K. Vanderbilt, who when he grows up will be married to Alva Erskine Smith, who will break Mrs. Astor's 400. Remember, William K. and Alva marry in 1875. Cornelius, too, though, he's working in the family bank, doing all the things. He especially likes teaching Sunday school at the St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church, where he will meet his bride. Alice Claypool Gwynn, and holy cats, it is on. Alice is from a big deal Rhode Island family, not only with a founder of the state within her people, but a governor as well. Her family is deeply connected into the state of Rhode Island, and most especially Newport. Cornelius II and Alice will marry February 4th, 1867. And Alice is... Pretty, and she's ambitious, and it sure is nice to have a husband with money. And, well, Alice is always going to kind of come out on top. It will help Alice when Cornelius II is bequeathed $5 million when the Commodore dies in 1877. Cornelius II's father, William Henry Vanderbilt, when he dies in 1885, 
leaves Cornelius to another 70 million. We've mentioned William Henry a little bit. Again, when the Commodore's money goes to William Henry in 1877, William Henry manages to double the amount of that money by his death in 1885. His death, William Henry's, is going to lead to a lot of building projects for his kids, some in New York City, some in Newport, Rhode Island, a few in some other places too. What I want to communicate is that these two, Cornelius II and Alice, are not hurting for cash over the course of their marriage, nor are they hurting for children. Cornelius II and Alice will have seven kids. And I'm going to go through this list as, oh, wow, the years and the interconnected events in this family, I think, are what are crucial to understand if you want to get into the great custody battle that's going to happen in the next century. Alice is the first daughter. She's born in 1869. Sadly, Alice will die at the age of five in 1874. Second kid up is William Henry II. He is born in 1870. William will have an untimely death in 1892 at the age of 22 from typhoid fever when William is attending his junior year at Yale. Cornelius II will donate a rather large dormitory in William Henry's name after his death. And just want to plant a little clue here that by the time of his death at the age of 22, William Henry II has done a little bit of living. Cornelius III is up next. He is known in the family as Neely. He is born in 1873. Whole bunch of story coming up with him. Gertrude, oh goodness. The profile of this episode-ish is the fourth child. She is born in 1875. Alfred is up next. He is born in 1877. Reginald, last son, but the sixth child, is born in 1880. Reginald is the father of Gloria Vanderbilt. Many, many moons from now, but again, just laying in the groundwork. I do want to make a quick interjection here in between kids six and seven. Y'all have already heard of Alice. Claypool Gwen Vanderbilt, and I want to connect it how for you. All the way back in 1883, in between kids six and seven, Alice will wear the Charles Worth electric light dress to her sister-in-law's Alva's ball, her extraordinary ball, her society wrecking ball in March of 1883. Remember that Worth gown lit up? Designed, right, by Charles Frederick Worth, the founder of Haute Couture. I think we talked about that in the Alva Vanderbilt episode. Go back and listen to the story of that ball. It's incredible. This is going to bring us to 1886 and kid number seven, Gladys. Gladys, sweet girl, is 10 years old when the 1896 year goes down, and that's the year that's going to change everything for the first time. Let's get there in this family saga, because y'all have never heard anything like this. Like, again, the story's supposed to be about Gertrude, and I'd start with her, but there's so much more that makes it so much more intriguing. The marriage of Cornelius II and Alice starts out fine enough. They're having kids straight away, and, well, money is not an issue. 
Sure, there is some sadness with the passing of their first daughter, but Cornelius II is running the New York Central Railroad, at least until he had enough coming to him in inheritance that he didn't really need to work to make a living. He's got plenty of money, plenty of kids, plenty of building projects, especially that happen, remember, when William Henry, the patriarch, Cornelius II's father, and William K.'s father, dies in 1885. The first project up for Cornelius II and Alice with all of that juicy, juicy inheritance money in 1886 is building a chateau on Fifth Avenue. This home is so extravagant, it stretches from 57th to 58th Street. The home is designed by George Brown Post, and holy catch, y'all, it's 130 rooms. This home will take the place of eight brownstone row houses that were originally there. The annual tax bill for this home, just for the property, is $130,000 every single year by the time the home is demolished in 1927. There's another building project, too, and this is the one that Alice is really, really going to get into, going back to the land she loves more than anywhere else, Newport, Rhode Island. As soon as William Henry, Daddy Patriarch Cash, comes rolling into Cornelius II's hands, it is off to buy a home in Newport. There is a home at the site of the Breakers, where Cornelius II will originally buy the property in 1885. He'll buy the home and the property for about $450,000. It would amount to $13 million or so today. And the Breakers is... Psh, Bellevue Avenue, y'all, prime scene. And the home that Cornelius II buys was originally built and owned by a tobacco and horse man. It's not a bad place. This is in 1885. And Cornelius II will establish themselves in Newport, Rhode Island. But hold up. Here comes baby brother William K. with his upstart southern wife Alva, who in 1888 begin building their marble house, her home made of marble, remember? That home won't be completed until 1892, but the thing I want you to know is now Alva and Alice are having kind of an undercover sister-in-law competition. 1892 is truly a terrible year for Alice and Cornelius too at Newport that summer. It is in May of 1892 that the death of their oldest son, William Henry II, happens at Yale. While William Henry II was attending Yale, he had a girlfriend. Her name was Grace Wilson, and the Wilson family has a lot of money. Her father's in banking, and when I say a lot of money, it really is a lot of money, but it's not Vanderbilt kind of money. So there's some sadness with the family, with the passing of their son, And 1892 will also have a fire in November of that year destroy the original home at the Breakers. Good Lord. 1892 is Alva's first summer season in Newport with the Marble House. And then in the winter, the Breakers burns. I want you to recall that 1883 ball. Because Alice has been making a point to upstage every other lady, right? With her costume that lights up 
Alice Vanderbilt, when it comes to homes, is not going to be outdone by her upstart southern sister-in-law. Again, Alice and Cornelius too. Money not a problem. Let's call Alva's architect, Richard Morris Hunt. The next home to replace the home that burned for Cornelius II and Alice will be called the Breakers. It is a legendary home. It is a four-story, high-Renaissance-style villa with 70 rooms, inspired directly from 16th-century Italian palaces, again, designed by Richard Morris Hunt. No expense is spared in the design or the planning. Helpfully, Cornelius II and Alice will insist on numerous upgrades within construction to fireproof the home as well. It will take two years for the Breakers to complete its building. The Breakers finishes in 1895, just in time for the summer season in Newport. The home, truly incredible. It will cost $7 million in 1895 dollars. To build that home today, it would cost about $220 million. And the Breakers, psh, nobody remembers Marble House anymore. The Breakers is where it's at. It is three times the size of the White House. Painted ceilings and a platinum paneled morning room. Gilded ceiling music room. There are reception rooms not only for gentlemen, but also ladies. There's a Roman-style billiards room. The dining room table holds 34 people. Within the library, the fireplace comes directly from a French chateau. The Breakers is a big hit for Alice and Cornelius, too. But maybe they should be paying, I don't know, a smidge more attention to their kids. Because let's catch us up with the family. Oh, let me mention at the Breakers, there is a children's cottage. There's a lot of action that happens in that children's cottage the summer of 1895. So let's talk about all those kids and where they are in their ages for the summer of 1895. Neely is about 22. Neely, now the oldest child with the passing of Alice and William Henry II. Gertrude is 20 years old that summer. Alfred up next He's 18 that summer. Reginald, Reggie, is about 15 when this whole year goes down. And the baby Gladys, she is nine this particular summer. So here are Cornelius II and Alice celebrating their success. I'm sure Alice is doing a little flaunting to her sister-in-law, Alva, that summer. Let's talk about Neely. Neely's 22 He's at home for the summer Newport season at the Breakers and will be captivated by the belle of the season. Her name is Grace Wilson. What? Yeah, his dead brother's previous girlfriend. Whoa. Grace Wilson has her sights set on Neely. And honestly, Neely's done in for. He's a smitten kitten. Neely's 22, Grace is 25. And I need you to know that Grace belongs to what is known in history as the Marrying Wilsons. That's her family. Grace is the fifth child of her banker father, who has a lot of cash in the right places. He's using that cash for the benefit of his children. Again, the Wilson money is no match for the families they're going to marry into. But let me give you a rundown 
on the matches that have happened for the marrying Wilsons up to this point in 1895. Grace's sister May will marry Ogden Golett, one of the richest men in the world. They get married in 1878. Grace's brother Marshall will marry Carrie Astor, heiress to the Astor fortune in 1884, much to the dismay of Carrie's mother, Caroline Shermerhorn Astor. Mama Caroline does not approve, but Carrie Astor is so into marrying Marshall Wilson that she will literally starve herself until her mother gives in to agree to the marriage. Grace's next sister will marry into the British aristocracy in 1888. Her older brother is known as one of the most eligible bachelors in New York City until his marriage in 1902 to Marion Steedman Mason. The marrying Wilsons are called that for a reason. And here, it is the summer Newport season of 1895, and it is time for the youngest of the marrying Wilson family grace to make her move on the brother of her previous Vanderbilt beloved. In no time at all, Neely and Grace are a thing, and Alice and Cornelius II do not approve. In addition to how they see through all of her scheming ways, they just think it's untoward. Grace dated your brother. Grace also is a friend of the Prince of Wales at the time, who is a notorious playboy. Grace also has a broken engagement in her past. She's older than Neely. Nothing about Grace is good enough for Neely. He is the first son standing in the Vanderbilt line. He is sheltered. He is naive. He is not ready for Grace Wilson. But no matter, the two are in love. But our summer of love is only just beginning. Let's move along to Gertrude, because the story technically is about Gertrude. She's 20 years old in 1895, and the thing you want to know about Gertrude is she's always played with the boys. She feels like at 20, her feminine body is a burden. Gertrude probably today would potentially identify as non-binary, at least at the minimum. Gertrude loves to draw and sketch. She truly has had a wonderful life. She's attended the Brerley School. She's had all the best homes, all the best clothes. Things are great. And Gertrude has a friend, her best friend, Esther, who is the daughter of Richard Morris Hunt. They are BFFs and oh, so much more. Because Gertrude and Esther, really, really close. They get a lot closer in the summer of 1895 in the children's cottage. There are a number of letters that have been uncovered in the fullness of time that reveal a love affair between Gertrude and Esther. Many desires, a pretty intense physical relationship between the two. Gertrude will write that it is one of the thrills of her life when Esther kisses her. Oh my, Alice has lost control of her children. First up, they're going to send Neely off to Europe at the end of the summer just to try to get him away from Grace. They think if we can get Neely out of the country, Grace cannot sink her hooks into you. She was engaged to your brother, kid. This is adulterous. But Grace Wilson is not about to be deterred. She will follow her love Neely to Europe, and the two pick up their romantic affair where they left off. Gertrude, for her part, is forbidden by Alice to ever speak to Esther again. 
and Esther will continue to send her love Gertrude letters, but Gertrude is severed, cut off from her love Esther. By the spring of 1896, Neely is back with Grace Wilson in tow with plans for the two of them to marry. They set the date for June 18, 1896. Cornelius II and Alice, no way, no how. They will release a statement opposing the whole marital thing to the media, y'all. And the media is like, this is the romance of the decade. The heir to a fortune, giving it all up for the woman he loves. Because legitimately, Cornelius and Alice have said, we're disowning you if you marry this girl. The June 18th wedding doesn't quite go down like Grace and Neely planned. All of the guests they have invited are suspiciously leaving the city. No one's coming because mom and dad have threatened everyone that they're not allowed to attend. So now everyone in New York society is bailing out of town, including one of the groomsmen who sails to Europe two days before the wedding. It's not good. The press and the paparazzi are staked out at the church days before, trying to get any news they can. But they will get the news they're looking for the day before the wedding's supposed to take place. Poor Grace has rheumatism, and the ceremony is canceled. I think Grace and Neely are just trying to get it together, but wait. Just a few weeks later, July 14th, Cornelius II has a stroke which everyone in the family believes is brought on by all of the stress of this marriage that didn't happen. And now poor Neely, his family first didn't approve of the love of his life. And now Neely's being blamed for causing his father's stroke. Neely is going to move on out of the 57th Street mansion and elope with Grace Wilson, August the 3rd of 1896. What a summer. That's only one wedding this summer. There's another wedding happening, and hastily, too. August 25th, a scant three weeks after Neely and Grace elope. For some inexplicable reason, now it's Gertrude's time. She naturally has been forbidden from perhaps any other kind of way to live by her mother Alice, having thwarted everything from her summer of love before. Maybe Gertrude's going to get married just for the happiness of her father, who suffered from a stroke the previous month. With all of the terrible of the last months, Gertrude gives in to whatever kind of marriage demands are upon her, making her family very happy. Gertrude taking one for the Vanderbilt team. Who's Gertrude going to marry? Literally the boy next door, Harry Payne Whitney. Harry Payne is the son of William Collins Whitney, of those Whitneys. Literally, Harry Payne is the boy next door, or across the street anyway. The Whitneys have the home at 2 East 57th, across the street from Cornelius II and Alice. Harry Payne goes to Groton and then Yale. While at Yale, he's a member of Skull and Bones. He'll graduate in 1894 and begin law school at Columbia He doesn't finish there. Instead, he's going to go into sports and business, which means horses. He really, really likes horses. Everyone in his set is doing it as well. August 25th, 1896. Again, a scant three weeks after Neely elopes. There's no engagement announcement I can find. 
just the wedding news. Gertrude and Harry Payne will marry at the Breakers. Gertrude will wear a Charles Worth gown that was already in the family. She will also wear her mother's bridal veil. Gertrude carries gardenias in her bouquet. Ah, oh, what a relief to Alice. Gertrude married to Harry Payne and like the Vanderbilts have money, but the Whitneys have way more money than the Vanderbilts. Alice is thrilled. First kid for Harry Payne and Gertrude comes along in 1897 and Gertrude knows her role. I'm going to leave her here for just a second and let us catch up back to our chronological thread. Getting back to Cornelius II, who, bless him, will suffer another stroke in 1897 and will pass away September 12th of 1899 at their home on West 57th Street in Manhattan. When Cornelius II dies, the Vanderbilt family leadership is handed over to his brother, William K. And when Cornelius II dies, his estate is worth $73 million, about $2.3 billion today. No one's hurting for money, except for Neely. Neely doesn't reconcile with his father before Cornelius II dies. Neely's happily married to Grace, but they're also poor, they're broke, they're skint, at least for a while. Daddy Cornelius II was true to his word. When he dies, Neely is disinherited. Well, he's left with a million dollars, but the other kids are left seven million apiece, except for Alfred. Neely doesn't care too much. Grace and Neely will stay happily married up to his death in 1942. With a little financial help from brother Alfred, who will provide the couple with $6 million, what would have been in Neely's fair share of the estate. And with that money, and a little Wilson money too, the couple Neely and Grace will become A-listers in high society. Okay, so let's talk about middle kid Alfred. What happens with Alfred? Now Alfred is standing as the oldest son after the death of William Henry II and the exilement of Neely. And Alfred, a little background here. He will attend St. Paul's in Concord, and then Alfred's off to Yale. He's a member of the Skull and Bones, too. And Alfred will graduate from Yale University in 1899. Poor Alfred is on a world tour after graduation, when he hears of his father's death in September of 1899, and Alfred will come home, rush home, to receive the bulk of his father's $72 million fortune, which again, once he gets that, he will share the largesse of those riches with the extra $6 million to Neely, but even that won't reconcile Neely with Alfred or his family. 1901 is a big year for Alfred. He's going to get married January 11th of that year in Newport, Rhode Island to Elsie French. Elsie French is the daughter of Francis Ormond French. She was the president of the Manhattan Trust Company. This family has a lot of cash. This marriage is a good one. Reggie, Reginald, Alfred's brother, is the best man. And Elsie and Alfred have a son in November 1901. Fantastic. Reginald is next up in the marriage market. Now, Reggie, the youngest son, 
has already seen a lot of family drama go on and maybe his mama Alice is really rooting for him. See, Reggie's not a great student and he's not really interested in the family business either. Reggie likes horses and gambling and women. Those are his big interests. From a young age, Reggie loves the ponies, loves polo, loves flinging around his money and youth on not anything really worthwhile or important. Reggie will, like his brothers, attend Yale University. He'll give it the old college try, but just for two years before he drops out. Because when Reggie comes of age and hits the age of 21, Reggie will inherit his millions from his father's estate, which might prompt the dropping out of Yale thing. Everyone is really worried about Reggie and all of his wastrel ways, but alas, in 1903, Reggie's going to get married too, to Kathleen Nielsen. She is from, again, a very well-connected and wealthy family. Gertrude, by 1903, has completed her childbearing, having three kids from 1897 to 1903. It's all a big relief for Alice, with finally, all of her kids married, having kids themselves, with the exception of baby Gladys, who in 1903 is a mere 16 years old, not quite ready yet for marriage. It is here. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our most excellent sponsors. We'll be right back with the rest of the investigation. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talk to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talk to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. So now we're back. Turn of the century or so. I promised this story was going to be about Gertrude. Let's catch Gertrude and Harry Payne up. Harry Payne will inherit $24 million when his father passes away in 1904. And now Harry has all the time and money in the world to do what he wants to do, which is horses. So many horses. Harry Payne will inherit a horse farm when his father passes as well. So Harry's pretty happy. Gertrude, for her part, with the opportunity of all the time and money in the world, makes some big decisions this year as well. So far, since she got married back in 1896, Gertrude has towed the line. She's played by the rules. She's checked all the boxes. She's completed 
a dutiful marriage. She's had three kids. She will attend the family things at the home on Fifth Avenue. Again, check, check, check. But once 1904 hits, Gertrude is out. Gertrude's going to take off for Paris. And she's having a marvelous time as a solo lady in Montmartre and Montparnasse, taking in the last of the Impressionist years, experiencing Fauvism firsthand, looking at the dawn of the modern art movement. Gertrude has always loved art and drawing, and she really loves sculpture. She will study and practice in Paris. She gets to know Rodin. Whoa. Also, Gertrude, the girl who dutifully checked the boxes back in New York City, is really having a delightful time, a marvelous time in Paris, attending drag balls and nightclubs. All the action she likes is in Paris, and these connections, along with her education there, will serve her well when, just a few decades down the road, Gertrude will establish the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1930, but we're not there yet. When Gertrude is not in Europe or Paris, she will be in the village, in Greenwich Village, where Gertrude works and lives. She'll establish a small studio, Harry Payne does not come to the studio. Gertrude will live and work and entertain and host at her studio. She'll practically live there. But Harry Payne is stuffy. He loves golf and quail hunting and horses. Gertrude loves art and Harlem and maybe not Harry. Harry Payne will not let Gertrude hang the art in the home he has that she wants to. He detests that she wears pants. There's not a lot of common understanding between these two, and they mostly lead separate lives. Gertrude, not too bothered about much besides her art and her creative journey, and she's having a marvelous time in the first decade of the 20th century, hopping between Europe and the village. Let's get back to our timeline here, because there's so much more that happens to this family, and poor sweet Gloria Vanderbilt isn't even born yet. Oh, this family, friends. Let's continue the family drama here and bring our Vanderbilt family up to the year 1908. Things are good for Gertrude. Things are good for baby Gladys, too. Baby Gladys, now all grown up, will marry in January of 1908. You know, starting off that year great for the family. Gladys is going to marry a Hungarian count, Count Laszlo Sacheny. This one is a love match, and huzzah. Everything's great. Mama Alice is happy enough with this news, but alas. In April of that same year, 1908, Alfred's wife, Elsie, files for divorce, claiming Alfred has committed adultery with Mary Agnes O'Brien Ruiz, who is married to the Cuban attache in Washington, D.C. at the time. This story, y'all. Apparently, the affair between Mary Agnes and Alfred begins on Alfred's private railway car, the Wayfarer. But the two meet in London, originally, when Alfred saves Mary Agnes's life. Mary Agnes apparently is on a runaway horse on Rotten Row, and Alfred saves her from death and goodness. Alfred and Elsie will divorce, but all the papers from that divorce are sealed But the rumors about town claim that it cost Alfred $10 million to get out of his first marriage with Elsie. Elsie, with her $10 million, 
gets a way better deal in the end here because poor Mary Agnes, the other woman in this equation, doesn't really have a happy time of it. Her Cuban attache husband will divorce her and Mary Agnes will commit suicide in a London hotel room in 1914 when it is super clear to her that Alfred is not coming back. Alfred isn't coming back because Alfred is going to be pressured to marry another lady and really quick. She's an heiress, which helps. Her name is Margaret Emerson. Margaret Emerson is the daughter of Isaac Emerson, who is the founder of the Emerson Drug Company, also the maker of Bromo Seltzer. Her mother is Emily Askew. Now, Margaret is a divorcee herself. Her first marriage was to Dr. Smith Hollis McKim. This marriage lasts seven or so years until Margaret and the good doctor divorce in 1910 in a trashy Reno divorce. Margaret claims grounds of drunkenness and cruelty. But why is Alfred pressured to marry Margaret so quickly? Well, Dr. Smith Hollis McKim is not pleased at all that his wife has taken up with Alfred while they were married, and the good doctor will threaten a lawsuit against Alfred, citing alienation of affection. Alfred and Dr. Smith Hollis McKim will settle out of court on this one, but it's a little dirty. Margaret and Alfred, though, heart wants what the heart wants. They have a thing. They're both really, really into horses, too, like super into horses. Margaret and Alfred marry in December of 1911 and quickly have two sons. Hooray! I do want to bring in the year 1914. Here is a banner year for American art. 1914 is the year that Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney is going to take a network of apartments around her Greenwich Village studio and home space. She's going to buy those apartments and she's going to begin exhibiting works of other artists within the village community at that time. These artists include John Sloan, Edward Hopper, Joseph Stella, people who would become huge in American art. Gertrude, by 1914, is giving them their shot. We got just a few more years within this episode, y'all, and we've come to 1915 in the Vanderbilt family, which brings true, true tragedy. It is in May of 1915 that Alfred, remember, super into horses, is headed to Europe to direct a meeting of the International Horse Breeders Association. The meeting from the year before in 1914 was called off because of World War I. So the horse, he said, is chomping at the bit, <laughs> super excited, uh, to have the International Horse Breeders Association meeting. Maybe when Alfred's over there, he's looking to do a little work with the Red Cross as well. His wife, Margaret, and his sons will stay in New York City in the Vanderbilt Hotel on Park Avenue. But Alfred and Margaret are going to have a marvelous time the night before Alfred set sail on the Lusitania. They're going to see a celebrated case on Broadway. And Alfred has plans to depart on the Lusitania like he's done plenty of other times. Alfred has been on that boat for at least half a dozen Atlantic crossings. Nothing should make this one any different if he had only listened to the warnings. 
The morning of the sailing, the German embassy has issued a notice that appears in the papers warning Americans not to board Allied ships. This warning advertisement was placed in 50 American newspapers, including major press in New York. Alfred and Maggie laugh it off during their breakfast hour, but then there's a knock at the door of the Vanderbilt Hotel of their suite, and in comes a telegram reading, The Lusitania is doomed. Do not sail on her. The note was simply signed, Mort. Translation, death. Alfred blows this one off too. He tells the press that someone's just trying to have a little fun at my expense. Now, the thing I want you to know is that Alfred had booked a ticket three years before on the maiden voyage of the Titanic back in 1912. And Alfred's mother, Alice, has a bad feeling, a bad premonition and tells Alfred he cannot sail on that boat, and Alfred will cancel that ticket. Alfred has an uncle, George, who was also booked on the Titanic, but he even pays attention, George does, to Alice's warning, and he'll cancel his ticket too, although George's luggage has already been taken on to the Titanic, and, well, George does not get his luggage back. We know how that story goes. But on this day in 1915... Alfred, for all the warnings, all the portents, Alfred will all aboard the Lusitania regardless, and, well, a good time is had by all, at least for a few days. All of Alfred's friends are there. He is headed off to do horsey things. A lot happens in his time on the boat, telegrams and plans and such. But it is on May 7th, 1915, that the Lusitania is struck by a torpedo and sinks. Alfred will die aboard the Lusitania, but not before becoming a hero. Alfred saves many people and assists them to safety from the sinking Lusitania. Of the 1,962 souls on board, 1,198 lost their lives that day, including Alfred. There is a write-up from the New York Times, Tuesday, May 11th, 1915. It's quoting directly here. People will not talk of Mr. Vanderbilt in future as a millionaire sportsman and a man of pleasure. He will be remembered as the children's hero, and men and women will salute his name. When death was nearing him, he showed gallantry which no words of mine can describe. He stood outside the Palm Saloon on the starboard side of the Lusitania with Ronald Denyer by his side. He looked around on the scene of horror and despair with pitying eyes. Find all the kitties you can, boy, he said to his valet. The man rushed off collecting children, and as he brought them to Mr. Vanderbilt, the millionaire dashed to the boats with two little ones in his arms at a time. When he could find no more children, he went to the assistance of the women and placed as many as he could safely in the boats. In all of his work, he was gallantly assisted by Denyer, and the two continued their efforts until the very end. I hope the young men of Britain will act with the same cool bravery for their country that Mr. Vanderbilt showed for somebody's little ones. Margaret, Alfred's wife, is naturally devastated. She's going to lock herself into that suite at the Vanderbilt Hotel, simply refusing to believe that her husband is dead. She says it's impossible. 
She'll tell her sister-in-law, Gertrude, that I will not believe Alfred is dead until I get conclusive proof. There are cables and more cables. She sends out rescue boats thinking maybe he's just been trapped on the coast of Ireland. She's looking for any and all information she can on her husband. Margaret will even offer a $5,000 reward for the recovery of his body, which is never found. Margaret will be convinced to move back into the Vanderbilt mansion on 57th Street by that weekend. Alfred is going to leave $26 million in his estate with his eldest son, William Henry Vanderbilt, back from his first marriage to Elsie French with $5 million. William Henry Vanderbilt, little fun fact, will later become the governor of Rhode Island. Margaret, the current wife, will inherit $8 million in properties, both in the United States and in Europe. The two young sons that Margaret had from this marriage will inherit the remainder of Alfred's estate. Now, Margaret, just a little follow-up, will remarry again, first to the director of the United States Mint, the money guy, on June the 12th, 1918, She'll have another daughter. They will divorce in 1928. Maggie will marry one more time to Charles Minot Armory pretty much immediately after that divorce. This one goes from 1928 to 1934. Margaret will reclaim her maiden name. Also, Margaret in 1979 is inducted into the Croquet Hall of Fame. So apparently she's a banging croquet player too. So where does this leave us with the Vanderbilts that are still standing? We have Alice, our matriarch, still doing her thing in New York City and at the Breakers. We have Neely, still very happily married to Grace Wilson. We have Gertrude, unhappily married, but very happy in her art. A little financial boost is going to happen in 1917 for her and Harry Payne. Harry Payne's going to inherit another $12 million from his uncle upon his death. His uncle is Oliver Hazard Payne. In addition to the $12 million, Harry Payne also helpfully inherits a steam yacht named the Aphrodite. Baby Gladys, by 1918, is happily married to her Hungarian Count Laszlo and now expecting her fourth child. We got one more kid to talk about and give an update on, and that's Reginald Claypool Vanderbilt. The last we heard from old Reggie, he had married Kathleen Nielsen back in 1903. They have a daughter that's born the next year, and the Reggie Vanderbilt family has kind of been in the background. I mean, not really, because Reggie's going to Reggie. Reggie and Kathleen are going to separate in the late 1910s. Perhaps most probably because of infidelity on the part of Reggie. And these two, Reggie and Kathleen, are headed into a divorce in 1920, which is where our story and all of the trouble will begin next Monday when we come back with the glory of Vanderbilt, part of the Vanderbilt Family Values Saga. I think this is a wonderful place to stop it. We've been through about 70 years That was a lot of history in one episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening and supporting our Done and Done investigation with your kind emails and your reviews by telling your friends with your Patreon support as well. I can't wait 
to be back next Monday to continue the rest of the story. And until we meet again, kind friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.